right. Well, if you'd like to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We began a new series this last, uh, last week on Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to do my best to get through the chapter before we sort of uh, reach Christmas. And so um, if you were here last week, you might have felt like we were really flying through it. We were. I could have taken a year to preach on those 12 verses. There's so much there. Um, but really just wanted to give you um, a broad a view of what Jesus is talking about here. And, and last week, we, we looked at this groundbreaking sermon that Jesus preached. He preached about righteousness, what righteousness really is, um, what, it, what it looks like, where it comes from. And it really all begins with the heart, and that's where he focused. It's our um, inner attitudes. That's where righteousness really uh, begins. And the, the people of Israel were really used to seeing the outward and, and Jesus really wanted to draw their eyes inward. He says, no, this is where it begins. It begins in the heart. And so that's really the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is not, you know, God's looking for a bunch of people who behave outwardly. He's looking for heart change. He's looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we are all born sinful. That's just the truth of it. If you have any kids at all, it doesn't take you long to figure that out. <laughs> I didn't have to teach my kids to say no or to disobey. They just naturally do that. And we're sinful from the inside out, and uh, we really need to be made completely new. And Jesus really gave a, a great picture of that, the idea that, that inner attitudes are reflected on the outside with Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19. We looked at these verses last week, but just to recap it. He said this, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. So, so he says thoughts of hatred result in murder. Thoughts of lust result in adultery. Thoughts of discontentment and covetousness, those kind of things lead to theft and stealing, and on and on, and on you go. And, and Jesus is actually going to elaborate on some of those things later in this, uh, this sermon. But once the inner heart of man is changed, well, then what? Why does man need to be changed? I mean, wouldn't it be great if God just changed man and then said, congratulations, you've got righteousness now, come on up, right? And we're gone. But that's not what happens. We're still here, right? If you're a believer in Christ today, you're looking around going, I'm, I'm still on earth. I'm not in heaven. You're not in the kingdom of heaven. If you think you are, <laughs> right, you, you haven't been looking around what's going on in the world. It would be nice, but no, he leaves us here. And I want to remind you what Jesus told his disciples the night of his, really before his crucifixion. He knew he was going to be leaving his disciples. And it wouldn't be great for him to say, listen, I'm going to be leaving you, but don't worry. Um, you're going to come right with me right, the next day or in five days or whatever. But he, he, he doesn't say that. In fact, this is what he prayed for them in John chapter 17, verses 15 to 18. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Uh, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer for his disciples. And he's, he's saying, Lord, I don't want you to take them out. I want you to leave them in. But while they're in, protect them. 
and sanctify them. And so we, we are people that have been made righteous, and we are made to remain in the world. And so why? Why do we remain here? Why did Jesus want his disciples to remain in the world, and why does he want us to remain in the world? The next part of his sermon answers that question. In fact, just just the passage I've kind of titled today is the, the influence of righteousness, that Christians are to influence the world. We're here because we actually make an impact. We have been delivered from the world, it is true, not physically, but we have been delivered spiritually. And so we can see now spiritual things that the world cannot see. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 reminds us of how we've been delivered. It says, Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So we have been delivered. Jesus has delivered us from an evil age, but we're still here in the world. All right, how does this work? Why do we need this delivering? It's a spiritual deliverance. Anyone ever seen the movie Matrix, right? Well, they they really try to emulate some Christian themes in that movie. And, And part of what they do, it's a secular movie, is actually a real picture of the world. Um, And the idea is that the world is asleep, plugged into some kind of matrix system of everything they live is in their mind, but they're really just asleep in a pod, right? And the people that are freed from it are trying to get everybody else to realize that they're really trapped. They're slaves. Well, that is the idea here. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The God of this age is Satan, and he doesn't want anybody to have the light of the gospel shining on them. He wants to keep the world veiled in darkness. That's his mission, okay? We have a counter mission. Our counter mission is no, we want, a light. We want to shine the light of the gospel on a people. But it's only those people whose minds that have been freed, okay, who have been spiritually enlightened that can influence the world toward good. Yeah, there's a lot of people who do good in the world, but it's only believers who've been freed from a satanically energized world that can truly infect new change. We've been enlightened, okay? We can see spiritual truths, and that's because we have received something the world hasn't, the Holy Spirit, right? You have the Holy Spirit living in you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, we're told, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. It's only those who are spiritual, who have the spirit of God, that can understand spiritual things. But the natural man, the man devoid of that spirit, really cannot understand those things. So believers have all of these things. They have the Holy Spirit. They have the truth. They've been freed from this present evil age. The the, the blindedness has gone away. They see clearly is the idea. Anyone identify with that, right? You see clearly. And especially in a day like today, you see really clearly, right? So believers, because of that, we have this fragrance. We, we smell a certain way to the world. <laughs> That's the words that, that Scripture uses. We have a fragrance to them, and it's ultimately to God it's pleasing. But it's not pleasing to everybody on the earth. 
It's not because of a certain cologne or perfume you wear, okay? But this is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So no matter who you're among, to God we're the fragrance of, of Christ. But to the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. Well, which group are we the aroma of death leading to death? That's those who are perishing. But to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. So to those who are being saved, we smell like life. It's eternal life, right? Don't you sense that? When you're around other believers, you're like, oh, they think the same way. They get it, right? It's a joy to be around. But when you're trying to communicate kind of spiritual truths, people don't want to hear that, right? It's very, very difficult. And to them, it's an aroma of death, right? Because you're speaking about death. You're talking about you needing to die and someone dying for you. And so it's very, very difficult. But the point is this, that the, the influence of believers is a very, very important thing. To live a godly life in the midst of a sinful world is a very convincing testimony to the saving power of God. And that is our challenge. And Jesus, in this sermon, he uses two figures to sort of illustrate the differing uh, characteristics of the influence that we can have. They're very familiar to you. I, I prayed about it earlier. Salt and light, right? He uses these two things. And maybe light for us today is, is more common. We will understand that. But maybe salt, how we, can we be salt? We're going to look at that. But let me just show you verse, uh, verse 13 of our passage. It says this. It says, you are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. So that's where he kind of introduces those two thoughts. And it's um, G. Campbell Morgan who, who really took what Jesus is doing and what he's seeing on the Sermon of the Mount, right? He's on the Mount of Beatitudes, and he's looking at a multitude of people. And, and he, he's sort of saying, this is what Jesus saw, and this is why he used things like salt and light. I love this. He says, Jesus, looking out over the multitude of his day, saw the corruption the disintegration of life at every point, its breakup, its spoilation. And because of his love of the multitudes, he knew the thing that they needed most was salt in order that the corruption should be arrested. He saw them also wrapped in gloom, sitting in darkness, groping amid mists and fogs. And he knew that they needed above everything else light. And so he used salt and he used light. And so the truth of the matter is, is as uh, even in Jesus' day, the world wasn't looking very great. It is pretty grim. And the world isn't getting better. You should know that. I know there are beliefs about certain returns of Christ that have to do with the, the idea that the gospel will, will just get to the point where it affects society so much that we kind of go into this golden age, this utopian society, and I don't see that happening. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.13 says that evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And uh, that's certainly what I see in the world. And so Jesus has left his people here that we might influence a very lost people in a, in a dark world. And so let's look at our passage today. We're looking at verses 13 to 20 of Matthew 5, and I'll read it. It says in verse 13 that you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven." 
Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. And Lord, we just recognize that uh, we need your Holy Spirit. Lord, we need you to illuminate truth to us. This is such an important message to your people, to your church, the important message of influence, our, our mission here on earth, Lord. And so I just pray that your spirit would be with us, Lord, that you would just guide us into truth, that you also open up our hearts, Lord, that we might receive it because we do want to live lives that glorify you and Lord, lives that can impact this world for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's look at this. Here we just see uh, really point one, that, that righteousness needs to be displayed. Okay, we're talking about righteousness displayed. So look at it, it says, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And as I pointed out in verse 14, it says, you are the light of the world. And so the question is, who is the you here? So I want to make sure we see it in context. If you just back up briefly to look at what he's been talking about, look back at, at, at verse 10. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You see that? It's always good to go back and read a little bit, right? Go right into it. Who is he talking about? People who are willing to be persecuted for Christ. For the sake of righteousness. Who is that? That's to the church. People who have true inner righteousness. People who have been saved. A believer. A Christian. We have to be careful of those terms today, don't we? Christian has become so broad. There was a, a Mormon uh, elder that walked into a meeting, evangelical meeting I heard a couple weeks ago, and said, oh, it's so great to be among Christians. The problem is the man does not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But that he's a created being. So the man himself cannot be, therefore, by definition, a Christian, yet he considers himself to be so. We have to be careful with these words, don't we? I'm talking about someone who follows Christ Jesus, okay? And he says, you, you are the salt of the earth. And are stresses the idea of being, not doing. You are salt. You are salt. Now, why salt? Now, let's look at this. Number one is being salt. We're taught, called to be salt. And maybe for some of the younger ones in here, we're thinking... I don't know why I need to be salt, right? I just use that to put on my food. Why am I salt? Well, you have to put your mind back into the days of the Romans. Romans held next to the sun, okay? Romans held uh, salt as the next greatest and most important thing, right? They held it in very high regard. In fact, nothing was more valuable next to the sun than salt. In fact, Romans were often paid in salt. Have you ever heard that phrase, the man's not worth his salt? That's where it comes from. Because they, they, salt was so valuable, you could actually earn your wages in salt. I'm so glad they don't pay us in salt today, right? Oh, thanks so much. That's great. Um, but it was valuable in the Near Eastern culture because why? They didn't have refrigeration. 
right? You couldn't just stick your meat into an icebox. You had to salt it, and it preserved it. And so God um, even kept this picture of the importance and value of salt even in the minds of the Jews way back in the Old Testament. Did you know that several covenants were, were, were bound or sealed with salt? They were. And maybe you read past it really quickly and didn't realize it, but there they are. Let me show you one. In Numbers chapter 18, uh, verse 19, all the heave offerings of the Lord, I'm sorry, of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. So this is to bind his covenant with Israel. He uses like the, the most valuable thing he could think of, salt. It's a covenant of salt. He used a similar thing to bind his covenant with King David in 2 Chronicles 13, 5. Should you, not know, should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons, by a covenant of salt? Several other, other examples in Scripture as well, but I just wanted to show you a couple. Because Jesus' hearers on that mount, when Jesus was speaking this, would have understood that Jesus was talking about something of great value. You really have to get your mind there not just table salt, okay? But what about the specific meaning? You know, there are a lot of differing opinions on really what was the specific thing that Jesus was going for. Some think it was the color of salt, right? That it was the whiteness or the purity of salt because after all, Jesus has already mentioned purity, huh? Back in, back in, in, in the beginning of his passage here, he's talked about, about purity being an important thing in verse Verse 8, blessed are those who are pure in heart. So perhaps it's the color of purity. And, and you know, there's, there's an aspect of that that is, that is true, obviously. Um, the, the, the church should be pure. And, and certainly um, I wouldn't dismiss that. But saltiness really seems to be the issue here, not the color. Another view is that, that uh, salt flavors. So we're to, to sort of add a divine flavor into the, into the world Food is bland, kind of tasteless, unless you put spices like salt in it. And, and that's not necessarily untrue either. It is, it is true uh, that um, an unbelieving partner can, can um, be sanctified by the believing partner. We looked at that when we studied 1 Corinthians uh, 7. That is, that is true. God even offered to spare Sodom if he could find 10 righteous men. Why? Because perhaps you know, they would flavor the city to the point where they would turn from their wicked ways. That is, certainly, I, I wouldn't argue with that. But as I look through history, the world hasn't necessarily considered Christianity, Christianity as a whole to be attractive and flavorful as a whole. Um, our lives and, and our beliefs today seem to be repulsive to the world. Um, and in fact, let me give you an example. Even back in, in that day, Christians were really not looked in high regard. They were very pitiful-looking people. This is a quote from Emperor Julian, and this is what he thought about Christians in those days. He says, Have you looked at these Christians closely? Hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted. They brood their lives away, unspurred by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they don't see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All their desire is to renounce and suffer that they may come to die, right? That's, that's what Christians are. Who would want to be one? So even back then, I don't know that they had a flavor, flavorful you know, effect on the world. What about the fact that salt stings when it goes into a, a cut, right? You get a little saltiness in your, 
Uh, that's some of the ideas that maybe it's to sort of prick the conscience of the world, yeah, because it stings them a, a bit, make, make, make it uncomfortable for people. If you're, you're talking about the gospel, certainly the gospel is an offense. I wouldn't argue uh, with that. What about the idea that salt creates thirst? Yeah, you ever been really thirsty? The last thing you want to do is just drink a bunch of salt, right? You want to live in a way that creates a thirst for God. I totally see that. That's absolutely true. And all those above analogies, they have elements of truth to them. Absolutely. We are to be pure. We should add uh, an attractiveness to the gospel. We should be true to God's word. Uh, Even when it stings others, we should create a thirst for God for those who don't know him. But I don't think any of those are the primary characteristic that Jesus was going for here because none of those speak of the great value that he had in mind. And that was the characteristic of preservation, which is what it was used for. Salt's greatest value was found in its ability to preserve. And so um, I think that the idea here is that the church has a preserving effect against the tide of corruption in the world. That's the thought there. And, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones saw this, and he, he said something pretty amazing. He said this, Most competent historians are agreed in saying that what undoubtedly saved England from a revolution such as that experienced in France at the end of the 18th century was nothing but the evangelical revival. This was not because anything was done directly, but because masses of individuals had become Christians and were living this better life and had this higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected, and the great acts of parliament, which were passed in the last century, were mostly due to the fact that there were such large numbers of individual Christians found in the land. And he says most historians would even see that to be the case. I think that's the idea here. Christians are to have a preserving influence in the world. They, They slow down moral and spiritual corruption. And when the church is taken out of the world, there really won't be anything left to stop the the onslaught of perversity and wickedness that will come. And, you know, God is, he's given us, he's a wise God. He's given us several sort of barriers against evil in our world. The family was one. What did the world already attack and really virtually win, right? There's not really a family unit anymore that really has an influence in the world like it was meant to. It doesn't have to be husband and wife anymore. And that has sort of been destroyed. The church has even adopted that. We have the idea of, of law and, and, and government, that the, the, the government has the, the sword to hold back evil. But let me just ask you, what happens when you come into a world where every government now is evil? What is left? What's holding back evil? It is the church. That is it. And when the church is taken out, That's what you read in Revelation. That's why there's such an onslaught of wickedness, because there's no preserving influence anymore on the earth. Let me take you to a passage that you'll find this fascinating. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a little preview for our men, because we'll be starting 2 Thessalonians next year. Start of our three-year study of 2 Thessalonians. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 2, verse 7 It says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. This speaks of the Antichrist. When the Lord will consume with the, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness, brightness of his coming. But the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan 
with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. That will be a time when the church is no longer here. When the Holy Spirit, the restraining influence and power that dwells in believers is removed, there's nothing left to hold evil back. And Satan is unleashed. And it is literally hell on earth. That's what you read in Revelation. So the salt of the earth, extremely important, is it not? But salt has to maintain its basic character. If it loses it, it, it's lost its purpose. It's lost its usefulness. That's what he says in verse 13. Just go back to it here. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. See, salt doesn't lose its inherent saltiness, but it does lose its value when it becomes contaminated. It's no longer really effective, is it? And Jesus isn't speaking here about uh, Christians losing their salvation. I just want to be clear about that. You've lost your, your saltiness. You lost your effectiveness. And so you're thrown out and you're trampled by, by men. A Christian cannot do anything to lose salvation because the saving is done by God, ultimately. Right? It's his saving power that keeps me for eternal life. It's not my ability to stay saved. If it was based on my ability, I'm, I'm done for. It's on his ability to keep me for eternal life. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 10. Verses 27 to 28, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Jesus doesn't give eternal life, only to take it back. So what is he saying here if he's not talking about that? He's, a believer can't lose salvation, but he can lose his value. He can lose his effectiveness for the kingdom. And he does that when he becomes corrupted by sin and by the world. And there's a great picture here about saltiness and its corruption. In Israel, there's a lot of salt in the region, particularly if you've ever been by the Dead Sea. It's been corrupted by gypsum and other minerals there. But when salt would get corrupted in those days, you couldn't dump it in the garden. It would kill everything there. You couldn't dump it in your field. You had to dump it on the path, on the road, where it would be trampled underfoot by men. So Jesus is speaking to in terms that they would understand, right? When your salt gets corrupted, what do you do with it? He says you trample it underfoot. So when Christians are impure in their own lives, how can then you be an influence for purity? That's what he's talking about. When Christians are constantly maybe giving in uh, to, to sin and ignoring their conscience, how can they prick the conscience of the world if that was the, the meaning there? We can't really create a thirst for righteousness for people if we don't have one of our own. Do you see all that? We can't slow down the corruption of the world when we ourselves are corrupt. This is the picture. The church must stay pure. In James chapter 1, verse 27, we're told pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. For years, I read that verse and thought, that can't just be all God wants. He wants us to just take care of orphans and widows and be unspotted from the world. Yes, why? Because he wants us to be an influence. Be a father to the fatherless and then be pure. Remain holy. We talked about holiness a lot, didn't we? That we're God's people. We must remain holy. We serve a holy God. But a spotted person has salvation. They don't lose that. 
But can I tell you something? Peter does talk about something that they do lose. They do lose salvation, but turn to 2 Peter. I want to show you something as to, to why it's so, so important the church stay pure. Because you might be thinking, Kevin, doesn't this then just encourage people to sin? Once saved, always saved, uh, and I'm good. I can just live my life the way I want to live it. 2 Peter is the answer to that question. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he is talking about the greatness of salvation, that we've been saved by his divine power, that we have all things that we need to live for godliness. He says, you have everything you need. You, you haven't been shortchanged, in other words. You've been getting, given everything you need to live um, a godly life. And he says in verse 4, by which we've been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You've escaped all that. But, and this is key, also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For the very reason that you have escaped the corruption, you know that there's corruption in the world, you really should add these things to your faith. You shouldn't just say, I have faith and that is enough. But you should add, 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 add all these things. Why? Verse 8, for if these things are yours and abound, you'll be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've sat with many people in counseling before as they describe their lives, and I've just, I've just quoted those verses. They didn't know I was quoting scripture. I said, it sounds like your life is very barren and unfruitful in the Lord. Oh, yes, it is. Hmm. Why don't we go look at what he says, the reason that is. And look at verse 9. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. You can get to the point where you think you've lost your salvation. It doesn't say you have. But if you live a life of sin, you're a believer and you just give in to the corruption of the world, you actually doubt your salvation. The encouragement to believers all through Scripture to stay pure and to stay holy is not because you might lose your salvation, God might punish you. The, the whole reason is that you will forget you were even saved. That's the reason. And you'll be barren and you'll be unfruitful and you have no influence in the world. That's horrible, right? I don't want I, I to be that way. And this is what he's talking about here in this passage. Salt is very, very important. And the church must not compromise and become corrupt. And if it does, it loses its effectiveness. It's worthless, really. So that's salt. Jesus uses another figure in verses 14 to 15. It's, it's light. He says in verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Being light. How do we be light? Is Jesus talking about different things or is it really just another way to say the same thing? I think it's different because salt is a more indirect influence of the gospel. It's who you are and how you're, you're living. But light is the more direct way of communicating those things. So salt is, is inward and light is sort of outward, okay? Salt is negative because it slows down corruption, it doesn't necessarily change it. It slows it down. It, it stems the tide of evil. But light is positive. It reveals what it's wrong. It shines the light of truth on the falsehood of this world, okay? 
So indirect influence, the way we live, we slow down corruption, but a direct influence um, in terms of what we say, we manifest light. Jesus came into this world to be light. We're told that, right? You, you see in Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ. He knew that this man, uh, was, his son was going to proclaim that a man coming is going to do some great things. That's what he's saying. In Luke chapter 1, verse 79, he says, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The man who's coming, my son is going beforehand, is going to give light to those who sit in darkness. And then Jesus comes. And, and the apostle John writes of Jesus as a light as well. In John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And certainly we all know as Jesus grew and taught, he even referred to himself as the light of the world, didn't he? So, so certainly Jesus is light, but Jesus is no longer physically here. And he said, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But he's not. But who is? The church. This is why he prayed, Father, I ask that you keep them from the evil one. Keep my people pure. Keep them here. Help them to be light. And that's why when you read the New Testament, so many encouragements come to us to be children of light. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes this, For you were once darkness, that's all of us, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Walk is to live. Live as children of, of light. You're no longer children of darkness. You are children of light, so, so live that way. You know, earlier we looked at 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4, where it talked about the God of this age blinding the minds of unbelievers, that passage. And in, in verse 6, it says this, For it is, the God, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the, the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, said, who said, let there be light, <laughs> also gave that light in our hearts, that we might be a light to others. And that's why the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He knows that we have light. He knows we have it. He's not deceived by that. He doesn't want people to see the light. And that's why his attack has always been so strong against the church. We have to be a light. Can light be ineffective? Is there a time that light is not effective? Well, light doesn't lose its, its nature, but a hidden light is, is still light, but it's not a useful light. And that's the kind of description he gets here, isn't it? They don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket. That's a useless light that doesn't do anything that's the very purpose of light is to dispel darkness so when light is hidden it's ineffective and that's where we're called to be children of light i love philippians chapter 2 verses 14 to 15 it seems like a very simple passage it says do all things without complaining and disputing why right that you may become blameless and harmless children of god without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Why complaining? Why, why disputing? Why does he pick those two things? Listen, the world is watching the church. It, it has always been watching the church. Doesn't it? It's not ignorant of the church. It knows the church is here. But if all the people ever see or hear is a bunch of miserable, complaining, bickering people, we're dimming the light. We're, we're not a light. We're not a light. He says, don't complain. 
don't dispute. You are in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. And in that perversity and crookedness, you're showing purity and straightness by your life, by your words. Be a light. The world is watching. Look at verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. So we're to live a certain way not to receive glory or attaboys or pats on the back. We're to live a certain way that God gets the glory. That is it. We are called to live in a way that gets the attention of all. Our gentleness is to to be known by all men, we're, we're told. We're to do good to all, we're told, especially to the household of believers, but he said do good to all. And the reason is not to receive glory. We're not doing that to say, oh, that, you guys, but so that they would look and see, you really believe in someone else. You believe that you have a, a father in heaven. So righteousness is needed in the world. Jesus has shown the way to true righteousness and the important, importance, that influence of righteousness, that we need that in the world. But to the Jewish people who are sitting there in the audience, righteousness is a hard thing to really understand because for all these years, all their lives, it's all been bound up in adherence to the law of Moses, right? That is how you get righteousness. I have to uh, obey. But if you look, has Jesus mentioned Moses or law even once? This is why this is so astounding. Let me show you how righteousness really comes. It comes to those who are broken, poor in spirit, who recognize that they're spiritually bankrupt and they have nothing to offer God. He, He completely changes everything here. And so for the people sitting in the audience, this message, it might sound like a rival message, right? To to, to all that they have known, all that they have learned. So Jesus wants to make it abundantly clear that this is not the case. And that's where we go into verse 17. Seems like a change of subject, but he's really on the same thing. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Well, here we see righteousness fulfilled. Righteousness needs to be displayed, but righteousness has been fulfilled and ultimately will be. Jesus says that he didn't come to destroy it, the law or the prophets. When he says law and prophets, it refers to the entire Old Testament because that would have been the whole of of written scripture at that time. There was no written New Testament. It was the written Old Testament. What are some ways in which Jesus fulfilled the law? I just want to show you just a few, okay? You have the moral law. The moral law is God's Ten Commandments. It's a good law to use even today as a good um, argument against the sinfulness of man, isn't it? But, but the Ten Commandments is the moral law, and, and it says basically that you have to be perfect. <laughs> you, you can't kill, you can't murder, you know, steal, you can't commit adultery. And a lot of people say, well, I've never done any of those things. And Jesus is going to talk about that a little bit later on. You know, well, we do a lot of those things even in our hearts And it's the heart that God wants. He's not so much concerned about the outside, although obviously he doesn't want you killing someone. But he says it originates in the heart there. But Jesus fulfilled the moral law. He never sinned. That's how he fulfilled it. It's an impossible law for anyone to live up to. But every command he obeyed, every requirement he met, every standard he was able to live up to. But man simply could not do it. The scribes and the Pharisees realized early on that that divine standard was impossible to live up to. So what they did is that they invented a lot of traditions that, that were easier to live up to, a lot more complicated and more in number, but it, it, it allowed them to sort of at least accomplish something. But what it did is it lowered the standard. 
It lowered it. They added to it and lowered it. So they were never able to live up to the moral law. No human has, uh, and nor will anyone ever be able to, but only Jesus. Jesus has done that. But when we become united with him as believers, his perfect life that he lived now becomes ours. It's as if you live that perfect life of not breaking a Ten Commandments. That, that's pretty incredible to think about. it. We're united with Christ. That's why we, we also die with him. He died for us, but we become new creations. We're, we're new people because of what he did. So the moral law, Jesus fulfilled in that. He was able to fully live up to every standard there and meet every standard. Also, you look at the judicial law. That's all the laws that we, we spoke about when we looked at Haggai, the agricultural laws, the dress codes, the the dietary things, the cleanliness, all, all those things were special standards which God's chosen people were to, to adhere to so that they would live a separated life, a consecrated life away from those that lived around them. When did Jesus fulfill that? Well, he fulfilled that on the cross. We're not justified by our works. Obedience to judicial law? No. We're justified by Christ's work on the cross. Paul when he preached in the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia, was trying to get this message across. In Acts chapter 13, verse 38, he said, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So he's trying to get this message across. You're trying to be justified by the law. Everything you've done, unable to do it. But... There is one who is able to justify you. It's Jesus. Justification cannot be attained through adherence to the judicial or the moral law. What about the ceremonial law? You know, the sacrifice of bulls and goats and all those things also fulfilled on the cross. Jesus died. One death for all. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 to 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus' death once for all. So Jesus fulfilled the law completely. And that's what he said. I came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. Verse 18, for surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Interesting little words here, jot and tittle. <laughs> the jot here uh, in the Greek is the iota. It's the smallest Greek uh, letter in the Greek alphabet. In the Hebrew alphabet, it is yod, uh, which looked like the size of an apostrophe, maybe. Or it looked like an apostrophe, but it was the size of a dot above the I. So it's that, kind of, that small of a, of, a, of a mark. And a tittle was also a small mark. It was a stroke of a Hebrew letter. And the stroke next to that would make one letter different from the next. The point is this, is that nothing at all in God's word will be erased. Not only will every letter of the law be fulfilled, but every part of every letter of the law will be fulfilled. All of it, not one jot, not one tittle, will, will be removed or changed. What does that say to the people who try to change or reinterpret scripture today? What does that say to the church that tries to reinterpret scripture. Can we get away with that? 
Verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's, um, that's pretty severe. If we look at God's word and we're able to sort of reinterpret and, and, and change it and then teach others that this is okay to do, God's going to judge that person. And what's that say about church leaders today that are so easily uh, doing these things? They'll say, you know, Jesus didn't himself preach against homosexuality. No, he did not. But Jesus said right here that, that he, he, he came to fulfill the law. And what does it say in the Old Testament? It says quite a bit about that. Not one jot, not one tittle will be removed. And there's a warning to those who would change God's commands and, he, and, 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 and instructing others to do the same. And the warning is this, they will be least in the kingdom of heaven. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because it doesn't say that they lose salvation, that they won't be in heaven, but they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus will hold in low esteem those who hold his word in low esteem is the idea there. If there are people that, for the sake of the gospel, are trying to, trying to change some things, there are some of those that will go to heaven, but they'll be least in the kingdom of heaven because they have changed things. Now, I, I want to be careful to say something here. The exception is apostasy. The exception is the church that actually leaves the truth of God's word and begins to make up their own way to heaven and make up of their own law because there's a great warning there. Jesus isn't necessarily given that whole warning here, although he will later. But in Jude chapter one, the whole of Jude is about apostasy, about those who are supposedly of the faith. In fact, look at what it says in verse four. For certain men have crept in unnoticed. Where have they crept into? Into the church. This is what he's speaking about. Who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I think that there are many people in the church today who are like that, who have changed things just an excuse for lewdness, to live sinful lives. And God is going to judge apostates quite differently than what he says here, those will be just simply least in the kingdom of heaven. Jude has a severe warning. He says those people, it, for them is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. <laughs> He's talking about eternal judgment. And I, I read, I get the Christian Institute update, and I see that the church in Wales has, vote, has voted to allow the blessing of same-sex marriage, and I just think, you, you, you know, you don't know what you're doing. There's a great warning against that. You're really veering away from the truth of Scripture. Well, Jesus himself didn't teach these things. No, but he said he came to fulfill all of the law. He's not destroying the Old Testament. He's not replacing the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of it. And it really is just semantics to try to get away with living the way we want to live. And I think no believer should ever desire, regardless, to, to enter the kingdom of heaven uh, the least. No, I don't want any reward for God. I, I don't need to hear well done, good and faithful servant. Those are just excuses. Keeping and teaching the word of God, that's going to bring praise from God. So what will bring praise from God? It's going to be based on our gifts, success, popularity, those things. No, we've got to be faithful. That's it. Did we live according to his scripture? Did we teach it? Yes. And so we'll be faithful. So Jesus hasn't come to change anything. He, he's holding scripture in high regard. He's saying that. But look at it, verse 20, what he's trying to get across. For I say to you 
that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The righteousness practiced by the scribes and Pharisees, you have to remember, was external. It was, it was self-centered. It was man-centered. It was to get the praises and glory of, of men. Remember the Pharisee we looked at last week praying at the same time as the tax collector? That's the idea. The Pharisee said, God, look, look at all the great things that I've done. It's not a heart of humility, certainly. But see, these righteous Pharisees, they had set themselves up as the bar. Do you see that? And Jesus is saying, no, they're not the bar. They're not the bar. The, the righteousness that you need is far above. It must exceed the, those, those righteousness. It, it, they don't have it because God demands perfection. I've always said that's why I know the Bible is true. It's obviously not written by man because man writes something, a law that I can reach that's attainable. Just do this, 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 and you got heaven, buddy. That, that would sell. We don't preach that because Jesus didn't. We say, no, you have to be perfect. Well, who can be? That's the question. Someone was. Let me tell you about him. That's the message of the gospel. We can't make ourselves the bar. The Pharisees had done that. And so he has to break that. He says, you cannot strive for that righteousness. If it could be attained any other way, if you could get righteousness through any other way, listen to this. This is very important. Jesus would not have had to come to die. That was useless, but he did, which means there was no other way to obtain righteousness. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If you could get it from the law, why'd he come? Why'd he die? Because you couldn't. And what the great news of the gospel is, is the one who demands perfect righteousness of you is the one who offers it to you, <laughs> which is incredible to think. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we read this verse last week. It says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The substitutionary atonement. He became our sin. We got his righteousness. We got the better end of the deal, folks. So the righteousness of God is, is needed by everyone. That's the message here. Everyone needs it. And he says, let me show you the way to it. And let me show you why it needs to stay here. The earth needs it. It needs righteous people. Not so that we can look down our nose at people and say, oh, I can't believe you live this way. We are to show them the truth through the way we live and show them that our God is, it's a joy to serve him. It's not a burden, but also then follow that with the words of truth. Let me tell you about why I live this way. It has been said, uh, and it is a good quote, and it is true to a point, right? That you, that, that you, you need to, to, to preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. You've ever heard that? And the idea is like, well, you just can live it. Well, to a point. To a point, you can't really communicate the life-changing message of the risen Jesus Christ without using words. And so words must come. And so righteousness is offered to everybody that we all so desperately need it. He's given it to us through the sacrifice of his son, and then he leaves his church here so people could still hear that message. What a gracious God we have. So we don't have a God coming down here and saying, I just need to destroy you all. You all stink. He said, I'm going to save 
you. I'm going to offer it to you. You just have to accept it. That's why it's called a free gift. It's just given to you. All you have to do is accept it. And then, and then what comes is a great joy to live according to his word. It's not a burden. It's not a burden. It's a joy to live for him. So Christ has come to fulfill the law. And he's saying, I am not changing anything. It's on a new message. In fact, it's been distorted by your world. This is what it's about. You think righteousness is here. What did I just show you? It comes from the heart. Who can change the heart? That's where he's going to go next week. Please come back. You're going to want to hear the rest. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word to us today. We thank you for this brilliant sermon by Jesus talking about righteousness and how we can get it, where it comes from, how important it is. And I just thank you for the challenge to us today, your church, Lord, that, that we're here on earth for one reason only, to be salt and light. We, we are meant to remain pure so that we can hold back the corruption of this world, the darkness that creeps in on this world. We can hold it back and shine the light of the gospel on it and say, this is, this is falsehood. This is deception. Here is truth. And that truth has come to us through Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Lord, just pray that, Lord, if there's anyone here today who has just never, never heard the message of the gospel, never understood how, how we can be saved, Lord, I pray that you would just press upon their heart this one simple truth, that you've just called us to believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the only one that was sacrificed for my sin, to believe in him and then trust in him to help me live the life that he wants me to live. I won't succeed in trying to be this or be that. I'll only be able to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. So would you help your church to do that? I don't want them to feel beat up by this message that you've got to live this way. We can't. We have to have the Holy Spirit living brightly in us. So would your spirit just be in your people today to encourage us to live the way you've designed us to live, that this dark world still might see the light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.